0: Back up, please. Hello, and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast. I'm Abhishek, and today we have with us Andreas Kluth, who, as we all know, covers all the exciting news from the Silicon Valley for The Economist. But today we are not going to talk about technology. What we'll be doing is we'll be talking about stuff like Romans, Hannibal, and Carthage. Which is the main theme of the book that uh, he's working on currently, Andreas? It's great to have you back. It's
1: great to be back, Abhishek. Uh,
0: you know, I just j- had a joke with a friend of mine. He said that uh, who's your next guest on your podcast? So I, I said my next guest is uh, Andreas, and he says that he he's not a guest; he's family now. <laughs> Because you've been here for four or five times now, I think. I
1: feel like that. I feel like we're family. Because I, I was telling uh, my wife on our Google calendar saw yes last night that Abhishek is in my calendar. She goes, oh, you're talking to Abhishek tomorrow, as if she knew you. <laughs> you know, so my wife's name is Sandy. She said, tell him I love his video.
0: Oh, thank you. He did a
1: video on our site, and she loves it. And now she can picture what you like, because... You know, that that photo of you with the bandana over your mouth.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Very kind of her.
1: But you're part of the economist family now, more or less. <laughs>
0: I've been very lucky and fortunate to meet humble people like yourself, and it's been great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coming back to your book now for a moment, I've been very eager to grab those 30 minutes from you, and today that I have got, what I would like you to do is request you that in less than 30 seconds, uh, like an elevator pitch, can you describe the theme of your book? Starting now.
1: That is its challenge. It is about success and failure in your life, Abhishek, and in my life, and in the life of everyone listening, and how success and failure in your lives are imposters, how they're not what they seem.
0: Ah, that was more like a pit stop. Oh, was that 30 seconds? Less than that. And it's based on Hannibal. I remember you telling this to me exactly a year ago when we did our first podcast, and how is it shaping up now, and what's it all about? Well, it's shaping up fantastic. I'm,
1: I am distracted the last chapter. In terms of distracting, I'm like way ahead of my schedule and I'm having a great time. But sometimes with these elevator pitches, until the book is out, it's sometimes difficult because depending on who I'm talking to in that 30-second elevator pitch, I might mention the word Hannibal, Carthage uh-huh. in Rome, or I might not. Uh, and I might just mention success and failure or triumph and disaster. And just to tie the two together, I have an idea, and the idea comes from a beautiful poem by Rudyard Kipling. And you guys in India probably know him and probably hate him, he's controversial, but he did write this beautiful poem, no matter what else he might have written about empire, and the poem is If. And the line in the poem, which is this, meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. And it turns out that a lot of people have been saying that for many thousands of years. For example, I found the same line more beautiful in the Bhagavad Bahavad Gita the other day when I was rereading it. And I'm going to start with those two quotations, one from the Gita Gita, and one from, how do you say it, Gita, right?
0: Yes, Gita, that's right.
1: Gita, right. Yes. One from the Gita, one from Kipling. It's kind of ironic in some <laughs> way, you know. But that's how I start. Now, where does Hannibal come in? is I believe, and I'll be blogging about this a little bit, that non-fiction books about an idea have a problem. Usually you can say the idea in 50 pages and you're done. What do you do for the next 150 pages? Now, I don't want that to happen to me. Because what the human brain does is we like stories. We need stories with characters, with scenes, with plot. And the whole point about the story is that it illustrates this idea from the poem. But then in each chapter we go into other people, including myself, people I know, including people like Gandhi, Hmm. Solzhenitsyn, Eleanor Roosevelt, Tiger Woods. And the only criteria for selecting them is that they fit the same situation that happens to either Hannibal or his Roman enemies in that chapter. That's the idea, that's the link between Hannibal, as it were, that's the context, and then the topic, the theme is success and failure, being imposters.
0: And you've started a blog on it as well.
1: Yes, I started a blog about the process of writing it, and the blog is at andreasbooth.org or hannibalblog.com. Either one points to the same site.
0: And your mom is not too happy about it. Sorry, who's not too happy about it? Your mom. Your mom is not too happy about you revealing too much uh, in the blog. My mom,
1: you know, my mom worries a lot.
0: Right. She's
1: always worried a lot. I think that's what moms are there to do. And, you know, I'm a dad, so I know about worrying. As soon as mm-hmm. I became a dad, I just worrying professionally almost I, w- I wake up, I start worrying so she worries, and she's always worried about you know, just the things that might go wrong She loves the book Uh and the idea, but she's very skeptical about this blog thing, you know. And there's some good reasons. The ones that are not sort of um, in the blogosphere already, they, they tend to be skeptical. And I'm not sure who's right. I'm actually a little bit schizophrenic. I haven't resolved that yet, if it's smart for me to blog already at this point. Mm-hmm. you know, where I haven't even sent the, the book yet to the publisher. So I've been talking to a lot of my friends who are writing books, and some of them have blogs and books, and, and it just is not clear whether it's a good idea. Right. I'd I mean, i love to know what you think, because you're very new media savvy. Admittedly, you, you're you not writing a book, I think, but, but I, you know, you, you probably have some ideas about it.
0: Well, if I can sit at one place and write a paragraph, I'll pat my back. So I have enormous amount of respect for someone who has the nerve and the energy to juggle between being a new father, working for The Economist, updating blog posts every day, and updating his book like you are doing. But if you were to ask me, I think it's a very good idea for someone like me who gets to read about the author and a reflection of what I will get to read in his book. And I also respect the author more that much more because he knows that I might end up revealing or tiring people out But so what? I mean, I'm a writer. If I'm good enough, people will read my book. If I'm not, I don't deserve to be read. So I think you're doing a great job
1: uh, on the blog. But I can tell you the things I worry about, Uh that my mom worries about. Number one, if you have a blog, do you kill the mystery and the surprise? Ah. When the book comes out, there's a new story, and we're going to try to find out what it is. What if you already give that away on the blog? Exactly. Then it becomes a question of how much do you give it, you know? That's a big problem. Another problem is my mom thinks, and I'm not sure if this is a good one. But what if someone steals it? What if someone? Because I know, you know, for instance, other people are working on books about Hannibal, and you know, a book about life. This is my mom speaking, not me, right?
0: Right. I think if I may, if I may cut you in uh, just for a moment, is uh, something that your mom would love to know is that when Anne Grove, the wonderful writer from the Economist, wrote uh, the book on Shelley, during that year, she told me in a podcast that there were five authors who wrote about Shelley and all of them did reasonably well, even though the idea was the same. Yeah,
1: actually, you're right. I mean, sometimes, for instance, for reviewers, when several books on a topic come out at the same time, they tend to sort of group them together, and if you're confident that your book is good, then you sometimes look even better as a result. But, you know, that works for books. It also works for other media. For instance, I found out that there's um, two movies coming out called Hannibal, and one of them is with Vin Diesel, main role as Hannibal, and the other one was Denzel Washington. Ah, I love the actor. Holy cow. If I can time my book to come out at the same time, you know, that would be quite nice. So I would love that.
0: Would would Tom Standage, your colleague, uh, agree with you? He's writing a book uh, himself, I believe, on...
1: He's writing one book after another.
0: (laughs) He and I, Tom and I
1: really have kind of a mind meld on many things. We're really on the same wavelength in terms of style and mm-hmm. what's the story and the, in many, many ways we, we agree. Tom, as you know, is one of the most tech savvy and web savvy people in the world. More so than me. And it's just interesting to me that he happens to be one of the people very skeptical about blogging about a book. That sort of made me sit up and become skeptical, too, for the time being. And we're in a very similar genre, because his genre, what he loves is he goes also back to history, and he also thinks in terms of telling actual stories. So actually, his genre is similar in some ways. The last one he did was about beverages, and this one is about food. Food, Understanding the history of food makes us understand food today. That's his premise.
0: You spoke about storytelling. I mean, it's no surprise that uh, since you write uh, your articles on The Economist, most of them read like stories, and I think that's a common thread that binds most of the authors there. But now, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you've been working uh, with The Economist for now, I think, 10 years or so? almost yeah basically 11 11 years so you always had an editor so now how is this whole experience of writing for yourself and being your own editor with no one actually looking over your shoulder of uh, about what you're doing I now absolutely love it but it's very different and in fact I'm
1: going to do a blog post about this because the hardest thing was it, it took me half a year to find my own voice Because for 10 years, for 11 years, I've been writing for The Economist where I really have sort of taken on a a voice. It is me writing, but I sort of sound like somebody different. Because, you know, we don't have bylines. We've talked about that before. But I sound British and I sound... There's a sort of kind of a brand of humor. And so now I had to separate myself from that. I mean, it's literally in the first person. And one benefit of the blog is... The blog is so casual, as you know, just the way we're talking here in the podcast, it's so casual, so informal. I couldn't hide behind anything. It is in the first person. It helped me because the book voice is somewhere between the economist's voice and then the book, and then the blog is this other extreme, which is ultra-informal and ultra-personal, and the book has to be somewhere in between that. But... I will have an editor at, at the publisher, the publisher Riverhead, it's part of Penguin. It's kind of like three identities at the moment, a book blog and economist.
0: So, I mean, with the amount of research that you would be doing, both primary and secondary, and with no one to tell you how much is enough, when do you decide that, all right, if I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita for the second time, I think it's enough. I think I've got enough ideas. Let's get back to my book and start drawing an analogy between Krishna, Arjuna, and maybe a common man on the street and try to make a story out of it.
1: Yes, by the way, Arjuna is very like Hannibal and in some ways, but if I were writing this book a few years ago, I would probably just literally kill myself. (laughs) Never enough. You can always do more. Especially with... I had this this really open-ended thing, Like I can always find more life stories that fits the theme, right? So I don't ever have to stop. And so now I've gotten better at sort of relaxing and saying, no, I have enough. Let me just return to what I want to say. And sometimes I make myself stop, but it's really open-ended. I read sort of like 10 biographies a week. Ooh. And then some, not just biographies, but sometimes psychology books and stuff, just to uh, try to understand what goes on inside the human brain, and inside the mind, when a disaster happens or when a great success happens and, but it's never enough and it's hard because I try to do my day job during the day and I put my children to bed and then I stay up quite late and mm-hmm. in work and research and it stops when it, exhaustion, exhaustion, it, I collapse at night and that's I know it's over for that day.
0: <laughs> and I've seen pictures on your blog you sitting in a half lotus position and in a padmasan position where both your feet are across each other on your thighs which is not exactly the most comfortable position that a human being can sit in you don't even have a desk at your place or a seat
1: i have a low kind of japanese table in front of a tatami mat right now i'm sitting in half lotus Actually, the lotus becomes comfortable after a while, you know. The yogis, they hung out, and the Buddha did it for many days.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it started this way. I mean, a few years ago, I wasn't able to even get into lotus at all. And, by the way, padmasana is the Sanskrit word, right? right. What's the Hindi for, for lotus? What, what would you, what's the Hindi for seat?
0: Uh, asana is a position. And seat is asan. Asan is a place where you sit. Correct. Right.
1: I've always been interested in Sanskrit and in Hinduism, and then became interested in yoga, but you know in the West, this was in the West, and, and in the West we sort of stripped yoga of all the intellectual content. But So I was going to yoga classes, but then I became interested in the background and I started reading things like Pagita. But I, I also just started practicing yoga and then especially a style of yoga called Ashtanga, which comes from Patabi Joyce in Mysore. In fact, the, it, the way you learn it is called Mysore style. So here in the West, we have all these yoga studios. This may be amusing to you if you have listeners in Mysore, but go to a, a, a certain kind of yoga studio and it's called Mysore style yoga. At the beginning, I was really stiff, because most of us in the West, we spend our entire lives sitting in chairs, never on floors, and so we can't usually sit on our knees or uh, in lotus. And so I started stretching every day, mm-hmm. and gradually I got flexible, and now I sit only on the floor in my office so that I stay flexible. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to get back to the way uh, that most Indians fit, you know, which is on the floor, which is much healthier. And it's a little bit of an eccentricity. I'm sort of, I'm sort of notorious for that inside economist.
0: Right. So your colleagues uh, expected that from of you. Here's
1: a funny anecdote that'll amuse you. John Nicholsway is our editor in chief.
0: Right.
1: And two years ago, he was visiting me here, and that he was not yet editor in chief. And he, and we went to a restaurant, and we came back to my office so he could check email.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, there was no chair. <laughs> he had to sit or get down on my tatami mat, and turns out he had a sort of a back problem at that time, ah. which is very cute. So I. I I, I was kidding him, you know, because I, I made the future editor-in-chief of e-commerce.
0: Kneel down. How <laughs> many, Matt?
1: Uh, I wish get rid of your chair. Get back on the floor, Abhishek. It's be better for you. It's better for your back, for your hips.
0: I tried doing that after you sent me that email of yours. But then after 10 minutes, uh, I had to concentrate more on the pain than on my work. So I got back on my chair. But I'll try that. Yeah,
1: yeah, do, you don't want to do that too fast. It took me years to get supple enough. the. <laughs>
0: Coming back to your book uh, very briefly, I ask this to Andrew as well, and I do that to you too. Uh, Do you let truth uh, to come in the way of a good story? Do you mean that
1: with these ancient people, nobody was there? Right. Sometimes I tell a story from long ago. I have a lot of dialogue between the characters. For the dialogue, I only use the direct quotations from the ancient sources. I know that the ancient sources actually usually made up the dialogue. Because they didn't have, you know, podcasts and microphones when Romans were fighting each other, right? Right. But I don't make up dialogue. I sometimes paraphrase, but then I take it out of quotation marks. So I really try to stick just to known details. So I don't sort of just make up stuff. By the way, let me just briefly spell out why Hannibal and his enemy Scipio are perfect for the theme. Hannibal, here's what he did. He had a grudge inherited from his father against Rome. And he wanted to defeat Rome. And he did several things in a row that were considered impossible. One is he took an army of elephants, probably Indian elephants, over the Alps in the winter. And nobody thought that elephants could go through the snow and ice over the Alps. Nobody had ever been in those Alps. So it's like taking an army of elephants over the Himalayas. It's, it was considered impossible, but he did it. And as soon as he did it, everyone thought he was probably a God. And he then kept defeating the Romans in one single day, He killed one quarter of the Italian men at that time. So, what I'm saying is success, success, triumph, triumph, and yet, all the successes and the triumphs led to disaster. Somehow, this is a mystery, somehow the result was that Rome won, and that Hannibal committed suicide. Carthage was destroyed, and of course, from the other point of view, Scipio, the Roman counterpart to Hannibal, it looks the opposite. And there were these incredible disasters. Rome had nothing left, and they were ready to give up. Like you, maybe when something really bad happens, or maybe you lost a loved one, or you have a disease, you're ready to give up, and somehow you don't give up, and you reinvent yourself, and that's what Rome did with the help of Scipio, and somehow. They want so it's symmetrical imposters.
0: So from what I understand is that you would be drawing an analogy between Hannibal and quite a few contemporary people, like uh, I mean it could be Lance Armstrong or or Steve Jobs. Some would suspect that uh, this might just turn out to be a, a how-to book or a self-help book. Uh, what, what's your answer to those folks?
1: I don't want it to be that. Unfortunately, the publisher that I have, in part, I chose that publisher. There were other publishers interested, and I think one other publisher, I think it'd be unfair to name them.
0: Come on, say it out. It's the new media. Yeah, Yeah, and and, you know, my agent and I,
1: we were joking. I was being ironic, jokes about how to call the book if it's a cell phone book, you know, sort of. Cannibal diet plan. Ten steps to losing weight. <laughs> but I was just making fun of it. Because, you know, I think that self-help books, they tend to sell well, but they're never good books. If you leave some American publishers, they want to make these books into these banal, trivial, superficial things where you have lists of ten steps. And I loathe that.
0: So a good writer doesn't make it too banal, not too obvious. You know what I mean? But then, wouldn't you risk that some people might not get it, so let me make it obvious. I mean, I can I can think of an example is that when one Western journalist asked uh, Mohandas Karamsan Gandhi that what do you think of Western civilization, Mr. Gandhi? And Gandhiji replied, yeah, that would be a good idea. So, he was only being ironic, but then if you would want to pick that thread, and put it in your book as well. So don't you risk people not getting it?
1: Well, hang on. Explain that particular example to me because is there anybody you know and care about who did not get the wonderful irony of that statement? I mean, that is why with Gandhi, it's fantastic. You know, I'm not sure if I understand it correctly, but if you worry that somebody out there somewhere hears Gandhi saying that and doesn't get it, then my approach is fine. You shouldn't be listening to Gandhi. (laughs) For instance, let's say, what's a joke? If you tell somebody a joke, a punchline. Now, if you tell only jokes with punchlines that everybody, illiterate people and educated people alike, understand, then you're going to tell very boring jokes. All the best jokes I know are jokes where, you know, not everybody gets it, but when you get it, you you love it. And, you know, Abhishek, the thing that you talk about is a great question because I wrestle with it. It agonizes me as a writer. I walk between these two lines. I could sort of dumb it down and leave nobody behind, but in the process, I would almost offend people. I guarantee you, Abhishek, that I would offend you because you're pretty savvy you know, quick-witted guy, and you want a certain kind of tone, I can have no close friends by making no enemies at all, or I can say, screw you to some
0: people and have some really good book friends, and thats I think I I want that. You would end up with a lot of money, though. If you dumb it down, you could be a millionaire overnight, maybe. But the money, I want to write a great book. Right. You know, one of my friends uh, joked that uh, when he read about the book Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, Uh, He came up and told me that uh, here's a guy uh, who sold his Ferrari and must have bought himself a Porsche because he he became a millionaire overnight, but most of what was written in the book was very didactic and uh, how-to. So yes, like you say, there are many people who would be offended.
1: But this is the sort of suspense that I'm in, because here's the thing that I promise you. There is this idea. It is about you and your listeners right now seeing themselves in this book, however, I am doing it through a story. What I'm saying is the story makes it a page-turner. You want to know what happens next. And in the process, you reflect on your own life. But I don't actually have to tell you, hey, please, could you please reflect on your life right now? <laughs> no. And I, I'm trying to do that. So if I fail, then that's how I fail. If I succeed, then that's how I succeed.
0: Right, right. But then how big uh, a challenge is it to write about people that we all know. I mean, somebody like Gandhi, like you said, we know about these people, and there is a lot written about them already. So how do you make these so-called cliched examples interesting in your book? Let's take the example of Gandhi. In one chapter, and this only makes sense when you read the
1: chapter, because it's the last chapter anyway, so I compare Hannibal and Scipio to Arjuna and Krishna and to Gandhi. And now, your listeners in India know Gandhi the way we know... Oprah, or something. <laughs> but here we all know, think we know Gandhi, but we don't really. So, for example, uh, with the example of Gandhi, I go very quickly through his early life. I don't dwell there. I go on what Gandhi said about the Gita, which is very interesting, and then I describe in sort of detail, sort of the last day of his life, especially in minute by minute. How he was depressed in the last year of his life, how he got up at three thirty a m on that day, how they went outside, it was cold. they recited the first two slokas of the Gita, then what he did, and how I described his death. So I take sometimes an, an episode and blow that up and so it's not just a sort of recapitulations like of the Wikipedia page because you know Gandhi. He had succeeded by getting Britain out of India, but he was depressed because he wanted one India, and he wanted Hindus and Muslims to get along together, and he wanted there to be no untouchables, and none of that was happening, and there was violence. And he was very depressed about that, but also very moved. But at the same time, because he kept reading the Gita, he tried to think about what is his right attitude. You know, if you're going to do something the way Arjuna had to fight that battle, you're going to do it anyway, and you don't dwell on the outcome. (laughs) You do it because it's right. And if you're going to get killed for it because people hate you, then you have to sort of be have equanimity about that. And that's how he he did it in that moment. That's what I'm interested in with Gandhi. But, you know, and it goes back to what Anne Rowe was telling you, that just because there's many books about Gandhi and even a great film doesn't keep you from reading this one because it'll be slightly different. Right. The trick part is when I'm choosing people like, for example, Al Gore. People who are alive are difficult because you don't know the last chapter yet, right? Right. For instance, Al Gore is an interesting one because of this inc- crushing defeat. Oh, yes. Bitter defeat. You Remember that time after his defeat when he was growing a beard and he gained weight? I mean, he, but then he has made this incredible comeback. Now, who is the winner now? George Bush, who is sort of the most hated president mm-hmm. of the country? Or mm. Al Gore who gets a Nobel Prize and everyone thinks he's an elder statesman and, and so forth. He seems to be the winner right now. Right. But the thing is, the difficult part is if you write that in a book, a book that comes out a year from now, you don't know what Al Gore has done by then. You
0: know? Right. I guess this happened with a book uh, that Jack Welch had released. I think it was straight from the gut. By the time it was released in India, Jack Welch was in the news for uh, not-so-bright reasons. Yeah, well, see, see, my book is not like that anyway. Like Books like that,
1: I have to even if it's by Jack Welch. I don't like those books because they're essentially uh, narcissism exercises, you know.
0: But yours is in first person
1: as well, right? But he was writing a book about how great I am. I mean, wasn't that the point of it? That's not interesting. Those autobiographies by public figures, they use little truths to tell a lie often, you know. So, I mean, I find them not so interesting, those autobiographies. I don't know.
0: Right, right. Would you be covering people like uh, Have you seen this movie called Goodwill Hunting? By Oh yes. So the story about a guy who's a genius, but he's trying to find some objective in life. And uh, doesn't want to do what he's very good at or best at. So, would you be covering people like those who are wedged between genius and uh, a common man? Remind me
1: how that one turned out. I think it was an American movie, so it must have been a happy ending. So usually, with Goodwill Hunting, with Will, it would have um, he overcame. That's the story of overcoming. Yes. Very American story of, you know, build yourself up by your bootstraps. So he was smart, and Americans believe in that, that sooner or later opportunity comes and you turn a, a disaster into a triumph. And that's what he did. But the interesting thing would have been, what if you'd stuck around in his life for 20 more years? Mm-hmm. Would it have turned into a disaster again?
0: It's interesting, I mean, being genius, there's no insurance against disaster, you know? A contemporary example that I can think of is that of uh, Heath Ledger from The Dark Knight, the movie, where he's been nominated for an Oscar, and he's done a wonderful job, but he's no more. And we we know what the reasons are.
1: Heath Ledger, I might actually look into that, you gave me an idea.
0: Yes. (laughs) This
1: is the wonderful thing. When I talk to people like you, some people leaving comments on the blog. In every conversation with someone, sooner or later this happens, that people start thinking of other people, themselves, their neighbors, or Heath Ledger. Literally in every conversation, I come out with a new idea for a life like that.
0: Doesn't, doesn't that put you off uh, by saying that, oh my God, I have to read another biography, so another three hours no, tonight? <laughs> because
1: I, I'm now past the stage where I feel I have to up on every single lead. But I love it because it tells me that my hunch is right, that it is universal and that the story I'm telling makes everyone think of other stories. And that's really the trick that has to happen.
0: In which language do you think, uh, Andreas? I saw that you can talk French, German, and English very fluently. So in which language do you think? Family,
1: it's really interesting. I think in English. And so English is my writing language. It has been for my adult life. My mother's tongue is German. So sometimes, and I speak German with my children. And so my daughter's fluent. She's three. She's fluent in German and in Mandarin, Chinese, and in English. So mm-hmm. I speak to her, I, I think in German. And so, and then she turns around and speaks to my wife in Chinese and then she thinks in Chinese. I don't know how it happens, but it happens and somehow it works.
0: (laughs) That's great. And what's your writing equipment as in? Do you think and do you write it down on a piece of paper or do you type it out? Because generally they said that your thoughts are shaped according to the writing equipment that you use. Some researcher had found out that... uh, an author, I can't pronounce his name, It's N-I-E-T-S-E, I think one of the greatest uh, authors of all time, uh, some philosopher, he suddenly started losing vision, so somebody gifted him a typewriter, so he started typing it out.
1: Did you, you said N-I-E-T, did you mean Nietzsche?
0: Yes, yes, that's him, that's right. Uh, Nietzsche, oh well,
1: Nietzsche, well I know Nietzsche, well, if he said that I have to find the quotes.
0: Well, he did not say that, one of his best friends said it, he said that when Nietzsche would write, uh, on a typewriter, his prose would be more terse and telegraphic style. While he had his vision going well, he would write far more uh, in a storytelling format. So the moment he got the typewriter, he started cutting his stories short and trying to be more to the point.
1: I probably agree that that must be true.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I've done it once long ago. Because in a typewriter, any time you change something, you have to start over. I wonder how anybody in history ever wrote anything because the way I write is Mm -hmm. I start with um, almost like sculpting a wet patch of clay. move it around and, and it comes out of that. So I cut and paste, I move, I try things and I'm very free in that way because I know... There's no cost, that I don't have to start from scratch that page. All right. So to answer your question, my tools are my Mac laptop. And I wrote a blog post the other day about how that's changed not even my writing, but even my reading. Increasingly, I find, uh, let's say, research papers or things online or on a PDF of a book. And I copy and paste the entire thing. And then I go through it and I delete everything that I don't need. And that has a wonderful thing because I actually read much more closely. Do I need this line or this paragraph, yes or no? Therefore, I really absorb the paragraph I'm reading, and then I delete it. And at the end, it can even be a, like a 10,000-word document. At the end, I might be left with 100 words, and I've deleted, you know, 9,900 words. So in that way, the tools really change the way I read as well as write, and I, I think for so the better. So, I mean, I think if you forced me to go back to, uh, you know, quill and paper or typewriter, I I would struggle for a while. I would get used to it, but right now I I would struggle.
0: Uh Your example is more like uh, when someone was asked, uh, what is music? He said, music is nothing but sculpting silence. So you read by deleting. Or more like Michelangelo saying, I think it's there on your blog, that he does not... Uh, w- what did he say? He said that?
1: Uh... Yeah, he said, I think it was Michelangelo. I someone asked him, how do you make these beautiful sculptures? And he says, oh, it's it's really easy. <laughs> I look at this big slab of marble, and I visualize the figure inside, and then I just chip away the rest. I actually think it's kind of funny. It's ironic because it's not at all easy, but, but that's what it is. You, you take away the rest.
0: And it's funny, isn't it? Again, you have the irony part of it in it. So there are people who do understand... Well, jokes like these, if you may call them, and, uh, there is an audience for such writing too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mark Twain, Mark Twain wouldn't be famous. Some of his one-liners like, what is golf? Golf is a good walk spoilt, is what he says. That's
1: right. So, <laughs> Who said that? And that was Mark Twain. You remember? Oh, Mark Twain, that's right. Oh, well, Mark Twain, great.
0: <laughs> yes. And he, uh... Andreas, one last question is that, uh, what if you get up after, say, a week of your book's release, and you find out that your book has been converted in a PDF. It's doing very well and someone, some prick has uploaded it on BitTorrent for everyone to download.
1: So what if there's massive piracy? Yes.
0: You know what? I, that would be
1: funny. The funny thing is, I hope I'm not getting myself in trouble with my publisher, but I'm not doing it for the money. If, therefore, 10 million people started reading it and I never got paid any royalties for the actual book, I'm like, cool. (laughs) I'm not sure. Maybe after that, when the book is out, I'm sure I will. uh, You know, life makes hypocrites of everyone. I'm sure I will reverse (laughs) But if if everyone reads it and loves it, and even though no one buys the book, I I could live with that. It it would probably bother me less than you think. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) deserve the right to be a hypocrite and reverse my (laughs) opinion.
0: Well, thanks a lot, Andreas, for this, uh, These well, uh, we, we we tend to talk for more than the allotted time, so thank you for bearing with me all the time.
1: Yeah, that happens to
0: us a lot. <laughs> and I hope you're... Wait to talk
1: to you again about uh, probably something techy again. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Matthew Shek.
0: Thank you so much, And and I also wanted to put this in that I hope your mom would not be too mad at both of us for revealing just a little bit more about your book in this podcast for 30-odd minutes. She'll probably be furious. <laughs> yeah, Alrighty then.